This week, the January 6th committee held a powerful hearing, concluding with a unanimous vote to subpoena Donald Trump. Meanwhile, at the same time, the Supreme Court denied Trump's application in the Mar-a-Lago search case regarding the classified records he stole. And shortly thereafter this week, the Department of Justice filed its opening brief in its overall appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's order, where she asserted equitable jurisdiction. Popak and I believe she's going to be overruled. I can almost guarantee it. New York Attorney General Tish James filed a motion for preliminary injunction against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, citing Trump's continuing fraud and criminal conduct. And get this, she requested that the court appoint an independent monitor, kind of like a special master, in an ironic twist. And Trump is ordered by a federal judge to sit for a deposition this upcoming Wednesday in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. And how does Trump respond? Well, he goes on his social media platform and defames her again, likely giving rise to a new cause of action, which indisputably can't be covered by any presidential immunity that he previously tried to claim. And a Connecticut jury awards Sandy Hook victims defamed by Alex Jones, almost $1 billion in damages. Off to bankruptcy court we go. The wheels of justice turn, and oh, did they turn this week. The most consequential legal news. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by Michael Popak. This is Legal AF. Michael Popak, how are you? Ben, I'm doing great. You and I called this show Legal AF. I have a new phrase. I love WTF for Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. They're my new favorite day on this show, and we're going to talk about it all. Wednesday, Trump's ordered to go to a deposition. Thursday, SCOTUS rejects his emergency application. The Jan 6 committee subpoenas him, and the New York Attorney General seeks an independent monitor and an injunction. And Friday, the Department of Justice files its uh, lawsuit or its uh, its uh, its brief to the 11th Circuit. I love WTF. You know, Donald Trump is clearly spiraling. He's been spiraling, but spiraling beyond anything we've seen before. You saw that letter, Popak, that he sent at the end of the week to Benny Thompson, the chairperson of the January 6th committee, in big, bold capital letters saying that the election was rigged and calling it a hoax and calling the committee members and FBI thugs and blaming Antifa and BLM. Would I call that letter, Michael Popak? Exhibit A. You know, the January <laughs> 6th committee in subpoenaing Donald Trump, we'll talk about it and get into it on the episode. Of course, they could face some potential hurdles. Here you have co-equal branches of government in the usual sense. You don't have a president trying to overthrow the United States government. So there's been usually a lot of deference to interbranch disputes where Congress is disputing with the executive branch or the former executive branch even. But here, Donald Trump just serves up the evidence and basically says, here it is. Here's intent. Here's my involvement in it all. And of course, the public disclosure 
of information is not subject to any potential executive privilege claim. And the point I guess we'll make at the top here, you know, and then go back a little bit in reverse order, Michael Popak, is that unlike the Judge Eileen Cannon dispute, where it's the executive branch trying to get its own documents back, that Nixon GSA line of cases from the 70s, though, does recognize a potential situation where a former president may be disputing with another branch of government, in this case, Congress, with kind of a slight ability to assert executive privilege. But that goes out the window when you start talking about things in public, whether it's at the rallies, on your social media platform, and here in this letter, because any assertion or objection now of Donald Trump saying, I don't need to respond to these subpoenas, the January 6th committee is going to say, we're just going to ask you about your letter, sir. We're asking you about the letter. We're asking you about your social media posts. We're asking you about all the things that you previously said. What do you think about that take, Popak? I like it. I think you're. We've we've talked before, Joe, only half jokingly, about he should type at the bottom of all of his fake tweets and submissions, Exhibit A, and and um, he covers himself in no glory. He's in. You know, don't be fooled by his br false bravado at. I mean, our listeners and followers are it, but don't be fooled by the false bravado at rallies and at and at social truth tweets and whatever the f they are. Um, he's in serious legal jeopardy, um, and he is whistling in the graveyard, acting like it's no big deal. It is a very big deal. I said with some jocularity, rubbing my lucky uh, flag pin, that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday was a terrible, terrible day. If you and I had a client that had a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, like this guy just had, uh, we would be having a serious heart, heart to heart, come to Jesus, come to Abraham conversation with them about how to try to resolve some of these, if, if any of these. He will not resolve any of them, and he will, he will not only go down fighting, he will go down and circle the drain. He's already circling the drain. Let's recall, I know our, our listeners and followers are, have been frustrated in the past about how big the wheels of justice are, right? What the circumference of the wheels are and why it takes so long to turn, but once they turn and you're trapped under them, you're crushed very finely. You know, he is in, in all of his suits that he's filed, he's like one and 70. And the one win he has, it was a, was a, a well, to use that phrase of the day, a nothing burger related to his um, a ballot counting that didn't change any aspect of the, the votes that were counted. He has lost 70 times in the courtrooms of America, federal and state. And so, by the way, that's just state, related, just related to yeah. the 2020. He's lost oh, yeah. probably, he's probably, I, I would say 80. this, Popak, the biggest loser in the history of defendants. Of I agree. I, I agree. You, no one's lost lawsuits more. If you start in the 80s and 90s with his bankruptcy filings three times for the casinos in Atlantic City, the only person in America ever to lose money in gaming. Um, if you follow that, when he was put under a, talk about it, a monitor, he was put under a babysitter, a trustee that gave him an allowance every month because um, they didn't trust his finances back then. But if you start in the 80s and 90s, every suit, every suit his father lost related to fraud in housing. That family is, I mean, they used to host a show called Celebrity Apprentice. They should have hosted a show called Biggest Loser because he has, as you said, he has lost more when it matters in every courtroom in America. So just be patient, everybody, because his track record is terrible. And now his his vanguard, his defender, 
is Alina Haba. And we're going to talk about her in the course of two cases today and her stupid remarks after after courts, federal judges have ruled against her client. Terrible week for him. You want to dive into the first, yeah, and first look, aspect? You've talked, you've talked about Trump in the 80s and the 90s and all of his losses there. The parallel is there where he extorted essentially his creditors, right? That was his mm -hmm. strategy at the time. Now he is extorting the United States of America. He doesn't have an actual defense anymore. What he does have is basically you go after me and I am building this QAnon weirdo dangerous army of people and I'm going to further try to destroy the country. That's all he's saying when I read these letters. But the January 6th committee sees right through it. And the January 6th committee hearing this week really focused on premeditation intent. And Liz Cheney started it off, set the tone by saying, our nation cannot only punish the foot soldiers who stormed our capital, those who planned to overturn our election and brought us to the point of violence must also be held accountable. And in this specific January 6th committee hearing, they really zeroed in on Trump's knowledge, his notice, his intent, his premeditation, his involvement. Some of the powerful moments, for example, I thought was when they showed that deposition testimony of the Republican National Committee chair, Ronna McDaniel, who in video testimony said that Trump and John Eastman called her to ask her to arrange for fake electors to meet, to rehearse the process of casting the fake votes basically a dry run of the coup. And this was one of the examples, though, where Trump himself, rather than throwing an Eastman under the bus or a Giuliani or a Sidney Powell or a fascist pillow guy, this is one of those other moments and a new one that we learned about at the hearing where he directly interjected himself in it. One of the other parts that I thought was particularly dastardly was this moment of Jason Miller bragging to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, former chief of staff to Trump, about firing up the base on extremist websites, the Donald.win website. And there were comments on the page about gallows don't require electricity, patriots will be armed to the teeth, and if filthy commie maggots try to push their fraud through, there will be hell to pay. Our lawmakers in Congress can leave in one of two ways, one in a body bag, two after rightfully certifying Trump the winner. I mean, horrific and horrible statements like that. And then you have the timeline of when Trump was aware, when emergency operations around 119 alerted Trump. He's told right away from then until 4 p.m. He's staying at the White House, watching what is happening, doing nothing. And behind the scenes, you have Nancy Pelosi essentially functioning as the president of the United States, calling governors and the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense and Pence and trying to coordinate a response. And one final comment that I'll make is I saw Steve Scalise there in the background and some of these other MAGA Republicans who've had the audacity recently to blame Nancy Pelosi and their ultimate gaslighting, fascist propaganda-esque, Goebbels-style BS. They were there 
watching Nancy Pelosi lead and how dare these MAGA Republicans say, where was she? She's to blame. I mean, these people are some of the most despicable, despicable, frankly, people out there. Losers, despicable, dangerous. Popak, what was your observations from this hearing? I thought the January 6th, 9th session pulled it all together as to the liability and criminal culpability of Donald J. Trump. Um, the takeaway both from new uh, video testimony, new video evidence, new evidence that was presented, and a playing of older evidence that had been played in, in the eight other sessions, but now pulled together in one masterful presentation with a couple of audiences that we've talked about before, the people. The people are the audience, the people of democracy. The Department of Justice is, is being provided a roadmap, a roadmap that leads directly to Donald Trump. What I took away from the final session of this presentation was the following, that Donald Trump knew and acknowledged the loss to Joe Biden, that he knew and acknowledged that he had lost all of his legal challenges, that he knew and acknowledged that he had an armed militia ready to help him that he knew and acknowledged that the crowd was armed and dangerous when he pointed it at the Capitol, that he as the president did nothing to protect the Capitol once informed. Neither did his secretary of defense, neither did his acting attorney general, that he wanted, Trump wanted to go to the Capitol as the siege began. The Capitol police and the secret service diverted him. He was angry that he couldn't go to the Capitol, not to stop it, but to continue to, to pour kerosene on the flames of discontent, to foment discontent and insurrection. That's all that he would have done standing at the Capitol. Thinking about this, we're going to talk about co-equal branches of government today and remind people about that. Here's one head of a co-equal branch of government that, that wants to travel to the other co-equal branch of government while it is under attack, not to put a salve on it, not to stop it, but to continue it. <clears throat> he saw the riot and did nothing about it for all of those long hundred and so minutes. And he told people around him, this is from the final session, that he thought the reaction of the people in laying siege to the Capitol, in attacking and trying to kill members of Congress, Congress was appropriate. He received entreaties and refused them from Fox News, from Hannity, from even Don Jr. to stop the violence and did nothing. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the closing argument against Donald Trump. And if the Department of Justice doesn't think it has enough, it didn't think it has enough before, it certainly has enough now. The other takeaway for me on the Jan on the final hearing of the Jan 6 Committee and some new information, we had heard about how leaders were handling the situation in the trenches. But to watch Nancy Pelosi and also um, and also the, the, uh, the Senate leader, do two things simultaneously, protect the institution of the government and their elected function under the constitution to secure the peaceful transfer of power by getting back into session and counting those votes. While video, not just of Congress people being brought through uh, tunnels and other escape hatches to get away from the, from the murderous mob, but I don't know if you saw, Ben, some of them had uh, homemade gas masks and bags over their head because they feared, you know, tear gas and bear spray and all these other things. At the same time, they're focused on their constitutional obligations. They 
not the president of the United States, is getting the secretary of defense on the phone, the national, uh, the national guard on the phone, the governors of the surrounding states on the phone, the cap, the, the capital police chief on the phone, the, the police chief for the surrounding Maryland and Virginia areas on the phone to get um, uh, troops on the ground to protect the capital and protect um, the elected officials. They did that, not the president of the United States, who instead, like a like a giant infant, but a dangerous one at that, an infant with his finger on the nuclear button, is sitting in the dining room railing against Mike Pence, you know, supporting and cheering on the people that are trying to burn down the Capitol first time since the eight, you know the seventeen hundreds, while he sat there with his thumb up his backside in the dining room doing absolutely nothing. He likes to call himself the president of the United States today. But Ben, he certainly was the president of the United States on January 6th. And he had an he obligation, whether he liked it or not, he had an obligation to protect a co-equal branch of government. And he was derelict in that obligation and that constitutional duty. And for that alone, we'll revisit at another podcast. I'm going to revisit the issue of the 14th Amendment, whether he's disqualified under Article 3 from ever serving office again, and whether people should be filing those kind of lawsuits now against them based on the evidence presented on Jan 6th. Well, I think they absolutely should. I think he absolutely should be disqualified. And it's not uh, dereliction of duty at this point would be putting it lightly. He was the center of it, as Liz Cheney said. It wasn't just the omission, it was the commission, and he was the leader of it. He was the one who ordered, he was the one who encouraged, he was the one who supported the violence, the trying to burn down of the Capitol building, and the just embarrassment and humiliation that our country uh, faced uh, internationally and, and here as well, as you have these MAGA extremists wearing Trump shirts, literally defecating and urinating on the floor of the Senate and the floor of the House and in our great Capitol building. And that is what the MAGA movement is. I mean, these individuals violent, defecating on the floor. I mean, what the hell is going on here? This is the United States of America. And Donald Trump is the most anti-American, and that was the most anti-American, humiliating, horrific day. And the fact that MAGA Republicans still try to refer to uh, these individuals as political prisoners, it's its horrific. But getting to the point at the end of the hearing where the January 6th committee in a 9-0 vote ordered that Donald Trump be uh, subpoenaed, that they would issue a subpoena um, and issued the subpoena to Donald Trump. Um, now the ball's in Donald Trump's court to respond to the subpoena, um, and he could respond or not respond. I mean, we've seen different people uh, who have been subpoenaed have different approaches. Steve Bannon did not respond. Uh, Peter Navarro did not respond. Um, and Bannon was convicted of contempt of Congress on two counts, one for not showing up for his deposition, the other for not producing documents. He awaits sentencing, which will be covered on a future episode of Legal AF once he is indeed sentenced. Peter Navarro's trial set within the next 60 days for contempt of Congress. Um, undoubtedly, because of the rare circumstances that involve a co-equal branch dispute, even though Donald Trump certainly didn't act like a co-equal on that day, 
presidents and the unitary executive doctrine and uh, presidential powers and executive powers under the Constitution um, have a lot of uh, potential defenses in the normal course against being uh, subpoenaed, even former presidents, as I mentioned, unlike the dispute uh, involving the Mar-a-Lago search records, there it's the executive branch saying, we want our own executive branch documents. And Trump, a former president saying, president saying, you can't have your own executive branch documents, executive branch. It gets slightly different where it's a co-equal branch subpoenaing a former president and a former president asserting an executive privilege saying, I'm, I don't have to tell you that, whereas I still may have to cooperate with the current uh, executive branch or have to cooperate with the current executive branch. But the assertion of executive privilege re, re is, is all about uh, confidential, deliberative communications that the uh, executive has, and it's waived when there's crime, fraud that it's involved when you're engaged in criminal conduct, and it's waived when you say the things publicly. So when you write books about it, and when you write letters like Trump did to Benny Thompson, when you talk about it at rallies, um, you don't have any confidential privilege because you've disclosed those facts publicly. And so what I think the January 6th committee is going to do very expeditiously is they are going to pursue and compel all of the appropriate remedies to try to get Trump to testify. His objections aren't going to be well-founded, and they're going to make the referral. The question becomes, is Merrick Garland going to uh, prosecute. Remember, the January 6th committee is not a, they don't have the ability to indict. They can make a criminal referral. For example, they made the criminal referral when Mark Meadows did not show up, but the Department of Justice there uh, decided not to take the criminal referral and actually prosecute Mark Meadows. And you can say, why the hell did they do that? My own belief, and I think it's being borne out, and I talked about it when that happened, is Mark Meadows is facing significantly greater legal jeopardy than the misdemeanor contempt of Congress charges, which carry with it less than one year of prison sentence if you're convicted. And I think they're holding it against Mark Meadows or holding it over his head to say, we've got you here. We've got you at the Mar-a-Lago search. We got you on actually aiding and abetting the insurrection. We got you on the fake elector scheme. We'll, we'll let you off this one right now, but you got to cooperate here and there. Undoubtedly, that's what they are are doing. Um, but you know, I think ultimately the ball is going to be in their courts. What they're going to do, whether they'll pursue a criminal referral, and to me, it'll just be one of the many types of crimes they can charge Donald Trump with. But they've got him. And what we're about to talk about the next topic, like they've got him, like with a bulletproof case at this point regarding the Mar-a-Lago search records and and the search documents. And, and now we're learning additional information there that Trump ordered employees to move those records after grand jury subpoenas um, were sent back in May of 2022. And so they've got certain cases that they that Trump can face 20 plus years in prison for. But Popak, before we go to the next topic, what do you think um, will happen with the subpoena being issued? I think um, I think Merrick Garland is going to prosecute that case. I think he has to. I think he has his own reasons that the Department of Justice has to go after the Mar-a-Lago documents 
and prosecute that or investigate that. Let's remember, we're, we're still in investigation mode. They haven't filed charges against Donald Trump yet. This this whole fight with just Judge Cannon through the 11th Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court on two different appellate issues that we're going to talk about next. Let's, let's remind everybody, the reason this is so extraordinary is because Judge Cannon has interfered in a way no other, frankly, district court judge would ever interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation pre-indictment. That, that's what we're talking about. He has not yet been indicted, but but Mer it's not going to be a trade-off. It's not a zero-sum game, I don't think. I don't think Merrick Garland's going to be like, well, I've already got him dead to rights in the Mar-a-Lago thing, so I'll let him walk on the Jan 6 thing. He's, gotta, he's got to enforce the laws as they are written, and, and um, the um, Jan 6 committee's authority has to be respected, and Congress and contempt as a doctrine has to be respected. And I believe he will he will not uh, give favor or privilege to a former president of the United States. Um, and he will do exactly what he's done with Bannon and the other one. I mean, yes, he made a prosecutorial discretion not to go after a couple of the other ones, I think hoping he would get them to flip. But um, here, um, this flouting by Donald Trump, um, I, I just don't think he ha he'll have any choice. And I thought it was interesting, Ben, I'm sure you've caught it maybe on the Brothers podcast, you know, Trump has been flip-flopping like a fish on a on a boat, you know, caught on a boat about whether he will or will not, will he or won't he testify. As at his first reaction was, well, it's too late. So I would have done it earlier, but it's too late. Well, why is it too late? The Jan 6 committee is still in power until after the after the midterms and after the swearing in of the next Congress. So it's not too late. And that's not a defense. And then it's like, no, I'll do it. I'll, I'll definitely go. I'll go live. I'll go live. And, you know, he'll make it some sort of rally press conference. He'll be found. He'll probably be found in contempt while he's actually giving his testimony. If we know if we know Trump and nothing that he can say will help him in all of the criminal matters for which he faces jeopardy. This is the problem with Donald Trump and his lawyers. He thinks he's the smartest person in the room, despite the you know one in 85 record in the courthouses of America, and that the longer, and you and I have had clients like this, I, I know I have, they think the longer that they talk in a deposition, in a meeting, you know, the longer they talk, the better it is for them. They'll eventually convince everybody in the room of their position. And Donald Trump suffers from that malady. And he thinks if I could just get on a microphone and I don't, you know, and I talk to the Gen 6 committee and to the American people, my, my followers, that'll help me when I, if I decide I'm going to run, if he decides he's going to run at all. But the reality is he's in a whole nother world. He's in legal jeopardy, criminal jeopardy to have his liberty taken away from him. And rightly so. He has no lawyers around them that have any cojones, no balls, no, he, he, he respects none of them to take advice. And the advice would be stop tweeting, stop talking, stop making new evidence, stop creating. As I tell my clients, I can't when they come to me, I can't do anything about the facts as they existed that have already been developed. Don't make any new facts while I'm handling this case that, that impact the case, right? All new snow, pure snow. <laughs> no, no bad facts being made now. And we have that conversation because, you know, they're still in business. They're still doing things. So you want to make sure that they're safe. He will not take that advice. So he he constantly, as you said at the top of the show, generates new evidence that can be used in all of these cases for no good reason. 
I mean, it really is it really is a new definition. We're watching a new definition of insanity. I mean, he really cannot control himself in creating new causes of action and criminal charges against him. It's it's almost like he has a mental disorder, not one that will disable him from from being a defendant in any of these cases. Thank God, but but one that generates new cases um, all the time. And you want to you want to get to uh, what's going yeah, on with Mar-a-Lago? We're going to talk also, Popak, about what happened in the. E. Jean Carroll matter as well, where after he was ordered to sit for deposition, what was the first thing he did there? He sent a, a social media post where uh, he created another cause of action for defamation, but we'll get to that. But going to uh, what happened uh, really, Popak, the same day as the January 6th committee hearing was taking place, the Supreme Court denied Trump's application in the Mar-a-Lago search case. Uh, with respect to the classified records uh, that he stole. Um, it, it was assigned originally to Clarence Thomas, who was the supervising Supreme Court judge over that circuit, the 11th Circuit. Um, Clarence Thomas, as we talked about, on we made that prediction. It seemed like a fairly easy prediction to make on the last podcast. He referred it to the full court, um, the full Supreme Court, and the full Supreme Court just denied it. It was an unsigned opinion. It was about one sentence long, terse, just saying it's hereby uh, denied. And there what Donald Trump was requesting of the Supreme Court uh, was that the Supreme Court partially vacate the motion for partial stay order that the 11th Circuit granted. So I'll break that down. The 11th Circuit granted the Department of Justice's emergency motion that was pending their full appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's assertion of equitable jurisdiction. And what the Department of Justice said to the 11th Circuit basically is like, it takes a long time to appeal what Judge Eileen Cannon is, how wrong she is. But like we need those 100 classified records back because like our national security interest is on the line and we need to pursue our criminal investigation. So 11th Circuit, get us those records back and take those out of that special master process. It has nothing to do. The special master should not look at that. Trump should have no right of access it through the special master process. Give it back to us. And the 11th Circuit granted the motion for partial stay and said, of course, they said it's self-evident that Judge Eileen Cannon is completely wrong here and that Judge Eileen Cannon should not have made that order regarding the classified records. Um, but as we'll talk about in a second, that same logic would apply to all the remaining 11,000 documents that Donald Trump had also stole, which is still subject to the special master process. But Donald Trump then ran to the Supreme Court and basically said to them, Hey, look, Supreme Court, we should, the special master should still be entitled to get those classified records. Sure, maybe uh, the Department of Justice can also have it back, but give it also to the special master because one of the things that Trump wanted is Trump wanted to uh, look at the records. <laughs> so he wanted to look at it and he wanted to try to derail the Department of Justice's um, uh, investigation. So that's why he had asked the Supreme Court to do that. And Donald Trump's basic argument was that the 11th Circuit, it's a ridiculous argument, but his argument was that the 11th Circuit, by the way, the panel was two Trump judges 
and one Obama judge who made that uh, per curiam or unanimous decision that granted the Department of Justice motion for stay. But Trump's argument was that the 11th Circuit, they were completely wrong. They never had appellate jurisdiction. And what the Department of Justice argued to the Supreme Court and what the 11th Circuit hinted at in their order, they go, no, this whole crazy mess happened when Judge Eileen Cannon asserted jurisdiction and she shouldn't have asserted jurisdiction. And because she's sloppy and doesn't know what to do other than to help Trump, she doesn't get the benefit of the doubt of how horrid her, her order is. And the 11th Circuit has appellate jurisdiction, whether it's what's called pendant jurisdiction, which means there's an inextricably kind of intertwinedness between the injunctive relief and the special master process, which um, uh, courts of appeals are obviously allowed on an interlocutory basis or before a final judgment to make rulings on injunctions, that therefore they're allowed to grant the motion for partial stay. Whether you view her whole order as an injunction, which it seemed the whole order was an injunction, um, that's one of the areas where the 11th Circuit has appellate jurisdiction, or whether you view it as what's called the collateral order, which means after she does what she did, you can't really unring the bell because if Trump gets to see these classified records and derails the investigation, you can't unring that. The investigation is destroyed. And that's an area where the Court of Appeals can traditionally get involved in. And the Supreme Court denied Donald Trump's relief. One of the things that the Department of Justice pointed out, though, too, that I thought was, you know, really embarrassing for Trump in, in their brief is like, they're like, Trump didn't even address the factors that you're supposed to address. Like, if you're asking the Supreme Court to intervene, you have to make a showing that the Supreme Court would find that this would be the type of case that they would grant certiorari for and that the entire court would review. Trump doesn't even brief that uh, element and Trump didn't even brief the element of irreparable damage and irreparable harm. Um, he didn't even brief it. He just talked about jurisdiction and he's wrong on jurisdiction. The Supreme Court agreed. See you later. Popak, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I do. If I don't have anything to add, it's just <laughs> might as well leave the podcast. So the um, this is all about, as I've said before, and we've said before, Trump's lawyers trying to get their hands on the hundred classified documents. It's it's a it's a sad commentary that he doesn't even know it, what's in his own desk drawer and what and what he took with him, um, and he has to be told that through a special master. And the reason for that, why does he want to know what's in the hundred classified? Why is why is he trying to? do an emergency application to the Supreme Court and lose again for the third time on documents before this Supreme Court. Why? Because if he gets his hands on them, he may try to do something with them in terms of um, trying to quash a future indictment, trying to suppress, um, make an argument to some judge like Cannon that makes no sense. He has to see them in order to make these uh, ridiculous, asinine-type arguments. So that's what this whole fight was all about. And it's what it isn't about is the full appeal. Because on the same day, back to my WF, WTF, on the same day, the Department of Justice, because they can do two things at one time, they got that order and then immediately filed their brief, uh, their appellate brief, to overturn the entire decision of Judge Cannon from soup to nuts. The entire thing. No special master, Get the F out of the criminal investigation, district court judge. You have no role there. You had no jurisdiction there. And good day. This should go back to the magistrate who is properly supervising the subpoena process. And we should move forward in our investigation. 
And the precedent that they are worried about setting is the reason that they're arguing to what I think will hopefully be a favorable panel of the 11th Circuit, remembering that that 11th Circuit panel will not be the 11th Circuit panel that ruled in their favor, the two Trumps and one Obama, um, on the original narrow appeal, giving them the access to the 100 documents and the criminal investigation not having any, not being stalled or stopped by the federal judge. We'll get a new panel, a special merits panel that has national security clearance. That's already been announced. And we'll know who that panel is after full briefing on the 17th of November before oral argument. Usually that full panel is announced right before an oral argument, which the which the Department of Justice, of course, has asked for. On this uh, SCOTUS rejection, we were we were accurate in our prediction that Clarence Thomas wouldn't have the balls to make the ruling on his own, although he is empowered to do so, just as every justice who sits over a certain circuit has that power. And he Popak, referred to I, the, the, the one reason I just wanted to say why I was confident of that too, is that because Trump was saying the 11th circuit did not have appellate jurisdiction, and the 11th circuit tends to make rulings that are favorable in the views of Clarence Thomas, they tend to be a right-wing court. By challenging their appellate jurisdiction and basically calling out the 11th Circuit, like Trump's basically like, the 11th Circuit's a bunch of idiots. Like that's how offensive his motion was. They're a bunch of idiots who took the case that they shouldn't have taken. And he kind of put, he wasn't helping Clarence Thomas help him, I'll just say, which there's probably no way to do that. But it was such a poorly written brief. There's probably no way to write it because it was so frivolous to begin with. But that that to me was ultimately the yeah. final analysis. Well, well, what I said on Wednesday was a little bit differently. I said I didn't think he had the balls having lost eight to one on a recent case, which I'm going to talk about a bit at the Supreme Court. Um, related to records on similar type issues, and given Ginny's Ginny Thomas's obvious inter inextricably intertwined involvement in trying to overthrow our government, I didn't think that even Clarence Thomas would have the balls, the cojones, the the brass to make this ruling on his own. He could have. There's no nothing that Justice uh, Roberts could have done, Chief Justice Roberts could have done to stop it. That is the power of each. Um, Supreme Court justice assigned to a circuit, but even I didn't think even Thomas would do that. And frankly, when the uh, one line, as I joked on a tweet, it it fit neatly within a within a tweet. Um, the one line rejection of the stay up emergency stay application. Um, there were no, even though it was unsigned, meaning it was the decision of the entire court. There were no dissents. Sometimes Alito and Thomas will jump off sides and write a dissent. I would have granted full briefing on this issue because the 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 panel the supreme court was so confident that there was no law here that was being properly exercised and the 11th circuit had done the right thing that they didn't even ask for further briefing remember the application was filed by trump's people clarence thomas gave the department of justice one week to file their brief and that's it in a, in a normal appeal there's three briefs there's the opening brief, there's the opposition brief or the appellee brief, and then there's a reply brief, and usually there's oral argument at this level. Supreme Court looked at it and was like, nah, we're good. <laughs> we're good on the papers, and, and we are just going to say denied, and let's move on. I thought maybe they would even grant full briefing, but they did not. And nobody, nobody, granted, nobody issued a dissent to say, 
oh, over, it was over my objection. I would have, I would have briefed this thing. So that was interesting. And it may be for the reason that you said that Clarence Thomas is protective over the 11th Circuit because it, it usually rules in his favor. And let's break out a little legal AF uh, law school episode or class right now about who covers the other, um, the other circuits. So the ones that matter anyway. So the 11th Circuit is Clarence Thomas. The 5th Circuit, which you and I talk an inordinate amount about, is, is covered by Sam Alito, which is another reason they keep trying to find ways to bring things up through Texas and other courts in the Fifth Circuit because they know they've got a favorable justice in Alito. He also covers New Jersey, which was his home court. He literally was a, was a judge in New Jersey before elevated to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so some people might be saying, well, where, where are the moderate justices where do they what are they responsible for well the second circuit which covers new york which is going to have a lot of trump issues because of the suit in new york is sotomayor the the uh, ninth circuit which is your home court in california and the western states is kagan and the federal court where a lot of the the federal appellate court where a lot of interesting issues between states and and governments and states that kind of thing is roberts um, and then uh, the newly uh, the newly seated Justice Jackson, Katanji Brown Jackson, she has the first, which uh, covers uh, New England, the New England area. So there are places, but you could see when when um, Trump's lawyers are trying to find the path of least resistance or a soft underbelly of the federal court system, they try to go where an Alito or a um, or a Clarence Thomas or maybe a Gorsuch or a Kavanaugh sit. And that's why we have those things. So I thought all of that was interesting and the lack of briefing. Just to remind everybody, uh, we're talking about Trump as the biggest loser. He's lost a couple of times at the Supreme Court, even with a right-wing Supreme Court, when it comes to documents. In January, he lost eight to one, uh, where SCOTUS refused to block the turnover of records from the National Archives to the Jan 6 committee. We forget that. That was in January of last year, you know, this past January. And he lost eight to one. The one was Clarence Thomas, which gave you and I pause and concern about him looking at this current document fight. But as recently as 2020, um, and this is going to tie into another segment we're going to do today about the New York Attorney General and things going on in New York, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office sought his financial records. He ran to court in New York to try to stop it. The Second Circuit, which is now, as I've said before, is covered by Sotomayor, ruled against him, requiring him to turn over the documents um, to the, or have the documents turned over to the Manhattan DA's office, then headed by Cy Vance. He didn't like that, so he took an appeal, another application emergency, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in full briefing, Justice Roberts, Chief, Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, had this very pithy phrase that sums it all up. He said, as to Trump, that no citizen not even the, the president is categorically above the common duty to provide evidence when called upon in a criminal proceeding. That's Justice Roberts writing for the court, and it was a seven to two decision with Thomas and Alito in dissent. So he has lost every time Trump tries to take a document issue ultimately to the Supreme Court, where he thinks it may be a favorable 
a, a body for him because he's appointed so many of them and now has the majority, he has lost and not lost by a little, lost by a lot. And so our predictions are, I'm going to make one here. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll agree, but you'll tell me. The, we, we'll go through the motions of all of this motion practice and appellate practice now with the full-blown appeal by the Department of Justice and Trump will file on this. And then there'll be another brief on the 17th of November, an oral argument. But he is going to lose at the Supreme Court level on the fundamental issue as to whether Judge Cannon, as a district court judge, can interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation and have any special master or any denial of documents to the um, to the prosecutors or the FBI or have to or force them to jump through any hoops or force them in any way to inhibit their um, their discretion to conduct the investigation and the prosecution as they say see fit. That's going to be the new law on the books courtesy of Donald Trump. It may just take us another uh, you know, three months, four months, it's not going to be next year. It's going to be, you know, probably, well, it's going to be next year in the sense of um, where the calendar is going to, is going to change, but it's going to be relatively quickly that we're going to have that, that now third precedent against Donald Trump and future Donald Trump's by a U.S. Supreme Court. Well, look what just happened in New Mexico. I mean, when John Eastman uh, tried to get the uh, federal judge there to assert equitable jurisdiction, like it wasn't, it wasn't a close call. The federal judge was like, no, I'm not asserting equitable jurisdiction. There's no irreparable harm and denied John Eastman's request. Like it, 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 these are not close call issues, which is what makes what Judge Eileen Cannon did just so uh, offensive. And frankly, when it happened, why it was so shocking. And it was like, she literally just violated the law in the most insane way, so flagrantly. And judges do it. Like, it's not like that's unique to Judge Eileen Cannon, but they're usually smarter about it and how they do it. It's like, really, you're just going to like avoid all of the law and and stop the Department of Justice from engaging in their own criminal investigation. Anyway, we will keep you all posted on that. And we got to go to what happened in New York with New York Attorney General Tish James, who filed a motion for preliminary injunction against Trump. As you like to say, WTF, I mean, a lot of action <laughs> taking place here. And what she said in her filing and in a, a related press statement that she made, Trump is engaged in ongoing criminal conduct and ongoing fraud. Um, we need uh, injunctive emergency relief. Court, step in right now, appoint an independent monitor. I always say in a twist of irony, it's kind of like a special master to review all of Trump's filings to make sure that he's not engaged in further fraud involving his submission of financial records. And in addition, we also became aware, is what the motion says, that on the same day we brought the New York Attorney General's office brought the $250 million fraud lawsuit against Donald Trump that Trump created a new entity called the Trump Organization Number 2. And so we at the New York Attorney General's office and common sense would demonstrate we're worried he's going to transfer assets from Trump 1 to Trump 2, which is a Delaware uh, company, Trump Organization 2, and try to avoid disgorgement or an order by the jury to take 
the uh, unlawful money that Trump gained by engaging in his fraudulent conduct and try to transfer assets to this other entity to avoid um, having to be accountable. And one of the other things that Tish James mentioned in her order is that Trump and his adult children are trying to avoid service and they're ducking service like the little babies that they are. And uh, it's no offense to babies because this is certainly lower than <laughs> babies. Most most babies are at least cute. Apologies, so no apologies to all babies out there. Um, and to serve them by electronic service was the uh, was the request that was made. Popak, anything you want to add there about yeah. the New York AG's yeah. filing? Yeah. So we we talked in the past podcast about how powerful a set of tools the New York Attorney General has it at her disposal. They're really unique. Most states actually don't give this level of power. To the to their attorney generals, but under the New York books, we have uh, you know I practice in New York, the Executive Law sixty three twelve, which we refer to colloquially as a sixty three twelve action, is you know should bring a chill down anybody's spine that is facing the other side of it because the attorney general has tremendous power is given um, uh, a sort of uh, a pass on certain things that normally a party would have to prove in a courtroom. For instance, she filed this injunction, and we'll talk about the, the substance of the injunction. And normally, if you and I have a client that's seeking an injunction, there's at least three, if not four, elements that have to be met. I joked on a podcast on Wednesday that uh, with uh, Karen that um, you know, most of our careers is is talking about you know what are the elements and how do we satisfy them for something you know, that that drives that's anim that drives our careers in law. But she she gets a pass, the Attorney General in the state of New York, because they only have to prove two elements for an uh, injunction, much lesser standard than a normal litigant. They only have to prove likelihood of su success on the merits. I'm likely to win when this case is all over, and that the equities. The equities, the balance, right? The we talk about the scales of just the the wheels of justice. This is the scales of justice that the scales tip in favor, just slightly, could be a feather in favor of her position. That's it. She doesn't have to prove anything else. She doesn't have to put up a bond, uh, which is an amount of money that that courts sometimes take in before an injunction is set in case the court rules in the future that the injunction was improperly or improvidently granted. She doesn't have to do that at all. So she gets, you know, a couple of things at her back, uh, wind at her back when she comes into a courtroom like that. You and I only half joked two podcasts ago that if she's going to stand at her podium and appropriately pound it and say there's a massive ongoing fraud and therefore we need a, and if the next word out of her mouth is a really fast trial, there's something missing. And you and I half joked about where's the injunction? If you think there's a massive fraud being currently perpetrated on the citizens of the state of New York, including its banks and insurance companies and lenders and all of that, then the next word out of your mouth better be, and therefore we're seeking an injunction. So I think she took some flack on that. I think that was a little bit of a hiccup in the strategy. I love Letitia James and everything she does in this case, but I think she should have brought that earlier, but she's able to bring it. Now, some courts, just to bring up why I was a little concerned about timing, federal courts in particular are very, very um, uh, demanding about the timing of when you bring because you have to show irreparable harm. And if you're not bringing it fast enough, that's one of the other elements. If you're not bringing it fast enough on the clock, the court can say, well, if if it's so 
bad against you and you're suffering irreparable harm, what took you 11 days to get here? She does not have that problem because she doesn't have to show as the attorney general irreparable harm. So to, I guess I could give her some a sort of backhanded credit. I guess she could have sat for as long as she wanted to bring that kind of injunction. Now she brings the injunction. And I don't want to minimize, I, I get the irony comment about it's like a special master, but having been involved with cases where an independent, independent monitor has been appointed on the financial services side, it's not fun and it ain't a special master because in a special master, it's an adversarial process where both sides get to have input and you have hearings and status conferences and the judge, in this case, Deary issues reports. You don't get any of that with an independent monitor. Independent monitor is up your you-know-what proctologist style. They sit in your office. All of the papers of your financial affairs have to go to them without any um, restrictions, without any editing, without any ability to, to uh, advocate. Well, I know the spreadsheet on my financial position says X, but let me talk to you about it. I mean, you'll only talk when you're spoken to, and it's only when the independent monitor wants that information. So it's a big deal uh, and consistent with her argument that there's a continuing massive fraud going on for an independent monitor to oversee all of all of Trump organizations and Trump's financial statements, um, fi financial position papers, all of his accounting ledgers before they go to third parties. Because remember, the argument here is that the fraud is on the banks. The fraud is on the lending public. The fraud is on insurance companies with the hyperinflated assets that aren't really existing. So the independent monitor is going to have to say, let me see what you're going to submit to Deutsche Bank, to Citibank, to whatever bank, Capital One Bank, whatever bank you're currently borrowing from. And what is the what is the basis for your valuation numbers? What is the basis for you saying that your financial condition is X, Y, and Z? Because the New York Attorney General is reminding the judge, Judge Ergeron, that Mazers, the 15-year auditing firm, walked away from this client and, and said on the way out in firing the client, nothing that we said in the past in terms of the, of the client's financial position can be relied upon. So if you have an independent monitor being established by Judge Ergeron, it, it is a way to insulate further perpetuation of new fraud by the Trump organization by having it go through this, this uh, independent third party that only reports to the to the judge. Now, the um, we're still waiting to see what happens with the request by Trump to get a, as far away from Judge Ergeron as possible and transfer the case to the commercial division. So when Alina Haba, to bring her up again, you know, the pod's favorite lawyer and cartoon character, when she was reached for comment about the application, um, after she went through her normal humna, 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 she then went into, oh, this is just an attempt to avoid having the case transferred to the commercial division because, you know, the, the, no, it's not. It's an injunction and a request for an extraordinary relief of an independent monitor because your client, including Donald Trump, uh, they have reason to believe is continuing to commit fraud on banks, lenders, and the investment community. And so, of course, Alina Haba once again loses the point. The transfer of assets thing is fascinating because, and here we'll break out another lesson on legal AF, there's a concept in the law that concerns fraudulent transfer of assets away from creditors or future judgment creditors. 
The state of New York is a future judgment creditor, obviously, of a $250 million or more um, civil filing under 6312 of the executive law for fraud. And a lot of times clients facing this kind of potential lawsuit or in a lawsuit, you know, want to do something with their assets. You know, I've had, without mentioning names, I've had clients talk to me, what can I do? And to be honest, there's very little you can do because if you transfer the assets away from the company and the company here being Trump organization, setting aside Donald Trump himself and the children themselves, which are personally liable, I would, I would assume jointly and severally all together with the Trump organization. If the Trump organization has assets now because they funnel all of the money that comes in first through the Trump organization, and they're trying to deplete the assets of the Trump organization, number one, the original Trump organization, by paying loans early, you know, which which uh, um, the New York Attorney General commented in her filing. You know, they're, they're spending the money to pay off all the loans that we say that were fraudulent, leaving little in the till in the bank for us to collect against. And now, on the day that I filed my lawsuit, Your Honor, they go down to Delaware. I love the New York Attorney General's office and investigators who figured out on day on that day, checking the filings, that there was a new Trump org uh, establishment of a corporation in the state of Delaware with a cross-filing in New York, this is where they screwed up, to be a foreign um, a foreign corporation operating in the state of New York, foreign in the sense that it's it's from a state outside of New York. We call that a foreign corporation when it's from outside the state. But in order to use a foreign corporation to operate in the state of New York, as you do business there, you have to register it. So they registered it as a Delaware Corp Trump Organization too, doing business in New York as Trump Organization. And that gave uh, uh, the New York Attorney General, the perfect opportunity to not only go in and, and say, well, there shouldn't be any fraudulent transfer of assets, and let's stop that right now and do a freeze of any transfer of assets from the entity that we're suing. But as long as we're here, let's talk about the independent monitor, which I think will be terrible for them. Here's the prediction. Ergeron does not I think the administrative judge that's responsible in the state of New York for deciding whether this case stays or goes to Ergeron to another judge leaves it with Ergeron. I think Ergeron sets a relatively fast trial schedule in the, by the second quarter of 2023. And in the interim, I think he's going to give to the New York attorney general because that's the power she has by statute. Most, if not all, of what she's seeking against him, the Trump organization in the injunction and independent monitor area. What do you think? I would tend to agree with you, Popak. I, I think that I think Engeron's going to grant this motion for a preliminary injunction. And look, this is the same judge who's already granted a contempt discovery order against Trump. He knows the games. He knows what they're doing. And, um, you know, I do like the fact, though, that Tish James is being aggressive here. Could she have done this a little bit earlier? Could she have done this concurrently with the filing of the case? Sure. But strategically, it's there's a few audiences and such a high profile litigation. There's obviously the court. There's also the audience of the public opinion. And so filing such a massive $250 million lawsuit, then immediately moving for injunctive relief. There's a, there's a lot going on, um, you know, with those and against a former um, president. So I, I, I think that 
Could it have been five days or three days after she filed? Sure. But I think it was the appropriate filing. I think she will prevail. We will keep everybody updated um, on that. Also, if you support independent media like this and you want to support it more, go check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. There's a number of different exclusive membership tiers from behind the scenes footage, exclusive podcasts. You could become an honorary producer of the Midas Touch podcast and your name will appear on the podcast at the end as well for the Midas Touch Brothers podcast and more. Head to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. In addition, today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with to help each of us be at our best. They simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing with all of the best things. This is why I love Athletic Greens. For me, keeping up with all the pills and capsules and gummies and me trying to pick out what I thought was going to be the best, I was not getting the benefit. But here, with one tasty scoop of AG1, it contains all those vitamins I need, 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high-quality, bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill those nutritional gaps in your diet, give you that energy and focus you need, and aid with gut health and digestion. It's lifestyle friendly, so whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it's for you, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, no artificial anything. So join the movement of Legal A efforts. And to make it easy to join this movement, Athletic Greens, in coordination with us, is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash LegalAF. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash LegalAF, A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S.com slash LegalAF, L-E-G-A-L-A-F, Take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Popak, we talked about this earlier. Wait, wait, I have a confession to make. What's that? Well, you were doing the AG1 ad. I had a piece of cold pizza. You had a piece of cold pizza? Yeah, because I was was hungry. And I knew how long the ad takes, so I had a slice of cold pizza. (laughs) Popak, Popak confessing. Popak, do you think Donald Trump, though, when he gets into his deposition, he's going to actually answer the questions? Is he going to confess or is he going to take the Fifth Amendment? Trump was ordered by a federal judge to sit for deposition this upcoming Wednesday in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. 
Um, this was the case where while Donald Trump was the president, he had a press conference. And during the press conference, he denied sexually assaulting E. Jean Carroll in the mid-1990s at a high-end department store. He also made a number of derogatory and, frankly, defamatory statements about her. Um, while he was set to go for discovery in the state court proceedings, she sued him for defamation in 2019, I think around November of 2019. In state court, Bill Barr swoops in, substitutes the United States government in place of Donald Trump, arguing that it's within the course and scope of Donald Trump's presidency, where he made the statements that was contested before the federal judge where it was removed to. Federal Judge Kaplan, who sits in the Southern District of New York, uh, Judge Kaplan ruled that substituting the United States government in place of Donald Trump was improper. He made it on two grounds. One, that the president is not technically a federal employee under the specific statute. And two, it wasn't within the course and scope of employment to defame a sexual assault victim who you sexually assaulted prior to the presidency if you accept the facts pled as true. That was appealed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. The Second Circuit made a ruling very recently, which stated that they found that Donald Trump was technically a federal employee, but as to the question of did the conduct occur within the course and scope of employment, they certified that question to the D.C. Court of Appeals, highest court in D.C., saying that your that 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 court would know more how to answer that question. They kind of punted. In other words, Trump tried to delay his deposition saying, look, all these things are going on in the appeals process. I shouldn't have to be deposed until the court of appeal uh, finally makes its final ruling on that course and scope issue, because ultimately, if it is found that the United States government could substitute in in Donald Trump's place, that would result in the overall lawsuit technically being dismissed because the federal government did not waive sovereign immunity regarding defamation claims, meaning you can't sue the federal officials for defamation. Thus, the case would ultimately be dismissed. Um, and so Trump said, don't depose me until we find out what happens. Judge Kaplan said, look, this is the federal judge in the case. You've been delaying, delaying, delaying this thing forever. Um, the case is basically ready to go. We don't know how long the Court of Appeals is going to take. You got to sit for your deposition, buddy. You're not above the law. Sit for your deposition. He ordered Trump's deposition to take place on Wednesday. And Trump's response to that was to go on his social media platform and basically make the same allegations that he had made the defamatory allegations that he made when he was president, but now he made it at a time where he's not president. He posted a statement on his social media platform, literally almost verbatim saying the exact same things. And so now E. Jean Carroll doesn't even have to worry about what the Court of Appeals is going to do because he now defamed her again outside the course and scope. He's no longer the president, so he can't even assert that immunity anymore. And in addition, because of the New York Adult Survivors Act, E. Jean Carroll's statute of limitations, which previously elapsed a long, long time ago in the 90s, starting sometime in mid-November when the law fully goes into effect, she'll have one year to actually sue him for the underlying sexual assault that took place, not just his defamatory conduct. Popak, anything you want to add to that? Yeah. I don't even know where, I mean, I, let, let's let's begin at the beginning. Um, the fact that he would say aloud, she's not my type again. I never understand this comment other than it is disgusting. I don't understand the comment. It means you only rape people that are your type. 
I, I don't understand how he thinks that's going to curry favor with the jury. Maybe it fundraises for him. It's another grift for him. It's funny that him pushing 80, commenting about a, a victim who's now in her 70s. First of all, we weren't talking about it when they were geriatrics. We we're talking about it in the 90s when he was a playboy that was busy grabbing the P word all around New York as chronicled by places like the New York Post and other places. And she was an editor for Elle magazine. I really don't understand how why he would say these things, but it is another exhibit A. <clears throat> to your first question to me when we started the segment, does he talk at this or does he does he interpose a some sort of um, uh, Fifth Amendment privilege? He's not subject to criminal prosecution in the state of New York. Let me answer that question that Karen Friedman Agnifilo, our co-anchor and friend, actually covered with me um, and her on our podcast in the midweek about three weeks ago. New York's... Um, now would allow for a criminal prosecution to be opened up about a charge from the 90s but the there's not it's not a retroactive statute on the books it was passed about 5 6 years ago and it would not cover Eugene Carroll and what happened to her normally it would so he could be he could he could be looking at criminal prosecution under the current New York statute but not on the one that would apply to the time that it happened so he doesn't really have a legitimate grounds to interpose um, a uh, Fifth Amendment privilege, although he may try, and that'll go back to the judge. Some people might think, oh, he'll just take the Fifth, but that process is supervised by the judge in every case. And if, that, if after an evidentiary hearing and the judge hears the testimony, it decides that the person does not really have a legitimate fear of, pardon me, criminal prosecution, Fifth Amendment privilege is stripped away by the judge and he has to testify and he's compelled to testify by by the judge in the case. And we know this judge has had sort of enough, you know, a uh, hand under the chin here, has had enough with Donald Trump and his delay. And, and, and he pointed out, as you said, the dilatory tactics, the delay tactics that Donald Trump has been embarking on in every one of his lawsuits, including in this one. So um, and then I and then I thought it was strange, but frankly, you know, I'm getting tired of saying I think what Alina Habba says is strange. As I said, she's our favorite cartoon character and lawyer. You know, she, her comment was to in her filing and in her argument to Judge Kaplan, her argument was, we've already won. We've won at the Second Circuit. He's an employee of the federal government. It's like, seriously? I mean, it's as, it's as if she fell asleep during most of her law school about how elements... Um, have to be satisfied before immunity protection is granted. She's half right. I mean, she's usually too smart by half, and so is Donald Trump. She's half right. Yes, the Second Circuit ruled, as you said earlier, Ben, that he is a, the president was an employee under what we call the Westfall Act, but it's a two-prong, uh, a two-prong test in order to get immunity and have the US government step into your shoes and protect you from liability for what happened on your defamation case, not the other assault, sexual assault case that'll be coming soon against him at the end of November. And in order to get the Westfall immunity, as we call it, yes, you have to be first found to be an employee, and we're done with that, subject to going to the Supreme Court on it. But but we're waiting on the, the highest level court of the District of Columbia, the, the highest territorial court municipal court, to rule on whether he was inside or outside the scope of his authority, 
the scope of his employment when he made those really disgusting, defamatory comments about E. Jean Carroll. And if the answer to that is he's outside the scope, he doesn't get Westfall statute immunity. And so, no, Alina Hava, it's not enough that the finding of employer is already employee is already in your favor. That doesn't decide the case. And the wheels of justice stop for no person. And that he has a civil case. And this is not the only deposition, just to explain, you know, a little bit how civil discovery works. There's been about a dozen or so depositions already taken or scheduled in the case. They've taken, for instance, the magazine editor for Elle magazine that was effectively E. Jean Carroll's boss. Presumably, I haven't seen, you know, it's a private deposition for right now until it's filed with the court and becomes public. But I presume it was to corroborate that at the time that she was sexually attacked by Donald Trump, as she alleges, that she reported it to somebody, that she, in real time, which is a corroborating factor that goes to her credibility. When you know, when you write in a diary in real time, when you tell a friend in real time, when you tell a boss in real time about the horrible thing that happened to you, it is part of the of the weight of evidence in your favor and as to your credibility. So that they've testified. Press secretaries for Donald Trump have testified. Um, and so, you know, she's put up her she's putting up her witnesses. Donald Trump, I mean, I don't know who he has as as a as a uh, person to help him with his case, um, but you know, this is their opportunity to do discovery in their case. But he is going to have to now sit, and I think he's going to have to ultimately, whether he does it initially or under court order, because he doesn't really have a legitimate Fifth Amendment privilege. He's going to have to tell the story not on social media, not on fake tweets. But in a but in a the effective equivalent of a court of law sworn in under oath by a court reporter and give his side of the story. And if he wants to deny it and he wants to say I was never at Bergdorf Goodman's, which is hard to believe, considering just so everybody knows, it is directly across the street and about a hundred feet away from Trump Tower. Bergdorf Goodman's, the department store, is a hundred feet away. From Trump Tower. You can go on Google Earth and go check Popak on that, or you can go to New York and go check it out. So it is not, it is not beyond the realm that um that this event would have happened at Bergdorf Bergdorf Bergdorf's or that he had been in Bergdorf's. So I think he's got he's got to explain ultimately that it didn't happen. He doesn't know this person, even though there are photos of the two of them together. There's no video cameras back then, unfortunately, security cameras to rely on. But he's going to have to say it didn't happen. I doubt he's ballsy enough under oath to say this crass, disgusting thing he keeps repeating, which is she's not my type. Again, as if he only rapes his type. I mean, I think things come into that courtroom ultimately like grabbing the pussy. And the comments that he made to the um, to the reporter um, that came out right during his campaign, I know for a fact because it's been reported that at least two other victims of his have already given testimony by way of deposition in the case, much like Harvey Weinstein and the parade of people that he victimized and sexually assaulted. That is part of the evidence basis here. So you you have other women who say, 
Me too. That happened to me at the literally at the hands of Donald Trump. Not which which of course reinforces that E. Jean Carroll is telling the truth. The interesting thing that he's going to have to worry about is it looks like Robbie Kaplan, the lawyer, friend of the podcast, she's been on the show before. I that she is going to take this deposition on Wednesday even before she moves for leave to amend her lawsuit to bring the civil rape charge. Now, you only get one deposition generally in federal court. You get It's usually seven hours by statute, by rule, unless you get more time with the judge, from the judge. This is interesting, Ben. What do you think? Why is Robbie doing it now, knowing that she may not get another deposition of him, um, is it because she's? you think she's going to ask the questions that will support that case as well while she's sitting there and she only needs one bite at the apple? What do you think? Exactly. It, more delay, delay, delay with Trump. He'll come up with some other excuse later. If you can get his deposition, you'd get his deposition now. You can ask about all of the other questions. The underlying sexual assault necessarily is intertwined within the defamation case, right? Because truth would be a ultimate defense to defamation. So you're getting at the same conduct no matter what. Um, and the only potential thing to think about now is because he defamed her again, would that support another uh, another defamation claim to be added to this lawsuit or another cause of action? But we'll keep everybody posted there and um, you know, we'll see on the midweek legal AF as well what uh, what transpires. And now I just want to talk about, though, we'd be remiss if we did not mention as the wheels of justice turn a big week for justice that the Connecticut jury in the defamation uh, lawsuit filed by family members, I think it was about 15 plaintiffs who were family members who mostly all of the family members who were plaintiffs lost a loved one, a child or a family member uh, in the Sandy Hook a school shooting. I think there was one plaintiff that was law enforcement uh, who's, uh, as well, um, who were all defamed by Alex Jones. Um, Alex Jones called these family members and their deceased children uh, crisis actors. Uh, based on his conduct, we heard horrific testimony at the uh, trial uh, regarding people threatening or even going to piss on the graves of, of children, um, people threatening to dig up the graves to try to prove Alex Jones's theory that it was defamatory statement theories, that this was crisis actors, people threatening sexual assault on family members, all because Alex Jones spread these defamatory lies on his platform. The uh, jury came back so just just to rewind just briefly for a second, Alex Jones, similar to the Texas case, because of his obstruction and failure to participate in the uh, process of litigation, he was found in default, uh, meaning he was already found liable and responsible going into trial. And all that trial was to determine were the damages of the plaintiff family members who lost loved ones. And in the aggregate, 
in the compensatory damages, uh, meaning not even the punitive damages. In the compensatory damages, we were talking about somewhere near $1 billion. I think the final total came to about 965 or $985 million. Uh, lots of MAGA Republicans responded to the verdict um, by defending Alex Jones and saying that this verdict was a sign of the regime trying to silence uh, people who they don't agree with politically. You go back to a few years ago, MAGA Republican candidate for Senator J.D. Vance uh, came out with public statements in support of Alex Jones, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, uh, the head of the MAGA Republican main influencer group, Turning Point USA, all put out statements in support of Alex Jones after the verdict. Um, just goes to show you, one, justice being served, but also what we have to deal with um, in MAGA Republicans leaning in to support and go out of their way to support Alex Jones even after this verdict and to spread more uh, disinformation and propaganda that this involves the regime or whatever the hell that they are trying to spread in their continued effort to divide America and spread hate. So that's the basic summary there. I don't think we need to go into it anymore, but glad that justice was served there. Now we go to the process of bankruptcy court where, uh, you think about what we talked about earlier in this podcast with Tish James wanting an independent monitor to make sure Trump didn't transfer or doesn't transfer his assets. One of the issues that the bankruptcy court will be looking at is all of the places and locations where Alex Jones may have transferred his assets to, whether it was family members and shell companies and offshore accounts and other things like that. It was believed that his net worth could have actually been somewhere close to $200 million or even more based on uh, the profits that were made by his uh, despicable conspiracy-laden companies. Um, and we will see. He claims he doesn't have any of that money. Um, but we're already seeing, based on some previous hearings taking place in bankruptcy court, of these um, unlawful transfer of assets. But we will keep you updated there. And that's what the plaintiff's uh, families are alleging, the unlawful transfer of assets. We will keep you posted. But the wheels of justice sure did turn this week. And while the wheels of justice move slow, they do move in the right direction. It doesn't mean that the wheels of justice won't occasionally hit roadblocks, won't occasionally hit the nail meeting rubber in the middle of the road. But if we continue to support our legal system, if we continue to support democracy, if we don't give up, and if we continue not just to hold hope, but to actually put in the work our democracy, our legal system, justice will ultimately be served. Such a pleasure and honor to be able to spend this time with you, Michael Popak, each and every weekend. Now would also be the time, everybody, if you want to support independent media like this, to check out the Midas Touch Patreon website. That's patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. Become a patron of Midas Touch at one of the membership tiers there and get exclusive benefits. Check out patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Support our sponsors. I really, really, really like 
um, athletic greens. I really drink it. I, you, you see me drink it during some of the episodes. I drink it every morning. It tastes great. It's cheaper than your cold brew habit. Go to athleticgreens.com slash legal AF athleticgreens.com slash legal AF with all the work that we have. It is important that we also remember to never forget about our health athleticgreens.com slash legal AF and check out the Midas touch merch at store.midastouch.com. We've got a great legal AF wheels of justice, long sleeve shirt, go to store.midastouch.com. We got Rovember shirts, row, row your vote shirts, convict or convict 45 shirts and more That's store.midastouch.com. Ben Micellis, and Michael Popak of Legal AF. We are so honored to share this legal news and updates with each and every one of you each and every weekend. The wheels of justice turn and we will keep covering the most consequential legal news. Until next time, shout out to the Midas Mighty. Midas Mighty.